Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents, resources, and programs related to American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I'm professor of history and co-chair of the Master of Arts. Sorry, I'm chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. Welcome to another edition of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series. In each episode, we do a deep dive into a single document, discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of said document, while also analyzing its impact on America's history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization headquartered at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a, certific a certificate of participation as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. The topics of this year's webinars are drawn from speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's voluminous document database available at tah.org. And you too can participate in the discussion by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time. The subject of today's program is Abraham Lincoln's 1854 speech on the repeal of the Missouri Compromise. To help us discuss it this evening are Dr. Dan Monroe, Associate Professor and Chair of the History Department at Millican University, and Dr. Jason Stevens, Visiting Assistant Professor of Political Science at Ashland University. I should point out that Jason is here pinch-hitting for Dr. Lucas Morell of Washington and Lee University, who was scheduled to be in for tonight. Uh, however, he is uh, stranded at the Atlanta airport, so we're very fortunate to have uh, have Dr. Steven joining us. Uh, Dan, Jason, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad you could make nice it. Speaker. So just to start things off, why don't each of you say a few words about uh, why this document is so important? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll go ahead and start off. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a it's a great question. Um, just looking at the document itself, right? It's a very long speech. I think we have an excerpt of it in the, the 50 Court Docs book, but this is a long speech. Lincoln spoke for hours, and in fact, I think he he didn't start until like 7 p.m. in the evening on October 16th, after Douglas had already spoke for for several hours. Um, and because of its its length, and especially because of its its subject matter, the restoration of the Missouri Compromise, uh, it's it's a it's a it's an extremely difficult text, but it's one that I have found to be indispensable, indispensable to for both understanding Lincoln's political thought, um, as well as <clears throat> as well as the causes of the Civil War, because here you have the the beginnings, the inklings of the confrontation that will um, in one way manifest itself in the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, in 1858, 
Um, but that will continue. These debates will continue to, to embroil the country uh, leading up to and culminating in, in civil war. The ideas expressed here by Lincoln, I mean, there are so many gems, and I hope we get to, to talk about some of them. Um, Lincoln will carry through, right, the next six years into the Civil War and into his presidency. Um, the first inaugural is here. The Gettysburg Address is here. The second inaugural. Lincoln's greatest speeches, the, the seeds of those are planted here at Peoria, October 16, 1854. And we get... Um, I think a, a, a great amount of clarifying information. I hate I, I, I'm not being clear enough in uh, the way I'm, I'm trying to explain this, but we get a lot of background information, I will say, that is indispensable to understanding uh, some of Lincoln's greatest speeches. Is the Peoria Address one of his greatest speeches? I think so. And maybe we'll be able to, I, I, I'm not going to be able to prove that tonight, but maybe we can go a little bit in the direction of trying to prove that tonight. Dan, what do you care to add? No, I think that's uh, that's a great, great beginning. I would just add that, uh, you know, Lincoln had not done much politically since he left Congress in 1849 and been really uh, practicing law and, uh, and by all accounts was often disconsolate and depressed uh, because his political career was lagging and the Kansas-Nebraska Act uh, reanimated his his um, political ambition. I don't know that it ever died, but it certainly reanimated it, and, and he got in, got back into the fray. And as Jason said, this speech really marks um, a major uh, moment in Lincoln's political career. And it is also his kind of anti-slavery ethos here uh, that's that's very well expressed. Most of the most Lincoln biographers, people like Michael Burlingame and, and others, argue that this speech marks the beginning of Lincoln's. Uh, you know, and Jason did a good job of kind of reeling him off. This is the beginning of the kind of lyrical statesman Lincoln, as opposed to the partisan, uh, you know, kind of uh, lawyer um, uh, Lincoln who spoke in the 1840s. You know, and now he's kind of a, a, a taking a kind of elevated tone. And he's also attacking slavery as a moral issue. I mean, that's the big, the big moment in the speech is really where Lincoln um, suggests that black Americans are covered by the Declaration of Independence, which was a kind of dramatic thing to say in a state like Illinois, which was a, a very anti-black state. So, as you, you know, Jason did a great job. It's a, it's a really a seminal moment. Let me ask this: Why, if 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 Lincoln wants to uh... Uh, go on record and denounce the morality of slavery, right? Slavery is, is, is morally wrong. He's very clear on this point. Why then is he so careful to point out that he's only interested in stopping the spread of territory into the, into the territories rather than go whole, whole hog uh, and, and calling like the abolitionists did for the eradication of the institution altogether? Well, uh, I'll, I'll take a stab at that if it's okay with Jason. Uh, it, uh, I would just say that uh, this is this is one of the keys to understanding Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln was not a radical abolitionist. Lincoln was a Whig who respected the law and the Constitution. In his view, uh, slavery is an institution, although morally law wrong. He says this many times. It's slavery. You know, if nothing is immoral, if slavery is immoral, nothing is immoral. It's morally wrong. 
but it's also protected by the Constitution. I mean, it's it's in existence, um, and therefore we need to uh, approach it as a problem by regular order. That is to say, he was not a Garrisonian radical who wanted to, uh, you know, burn the Constitution up because it was a, you know, a covenant with the devil. Uh, rather, he would want to work through the Constitution and the process of the Constitution to deal with slavery. Uh, you know, either by constitutional amendment or some other, you know, um, legal means. So, um, but of course, the territories uh, were uh, the province of Congress by, according to the Constitution, and the idea of allowing slavery to grow or move or expand, however you want to characterize it or whatever you want to use, into the territories was something that was perfectly, you know, restricting. It was perfectly allowed in Lincoln's view by the Constitution. So. He's, he's, he's working against slavery, but he's doing it as a moderate uh, on the issue and as a Whig who revered the Constitution and the law. Jason? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I, would, I would only add, actually, if I, I could go to, go to the speech to just maybe uh, say a little bit more about Dan's excellent characterization here of Lincoln as, as no abolitionist but an American Whig. Lincoln says uh, early on in his speech, uh, a universal feeling, whether well or ill-founded, cannot be safely disregarded. Right? So let me say that again. A universal feeling, whether well or ill-founded, cannot be safely disregarded. So repeat that idea in slightly different words in the first debate with Douglas at, at Ottawa in 1858. When he speaks of public opinion or public sentiment, Lincoln says, with public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Right? In other words, Lincoln despised slavery. As Dan quoted, right, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. Lincoln always hated slavery. That was not a new revelation to him in 1854. Right? He carried that, that hatred of slavery with him his entire life. But not everybody did. And in Lincoln's Illinois, right, where this speech is delivered, Illinois is a free state, but that, just because it's an anti-slavery state doesn't mean it's a pro-black state. The state laws in Illinois, even at this time, prohibited former slaves or freed slaves from coming into the state. Right, and competing with, with white wage laborers. That was against the law in, in Illinois for, for freed slaves to come in because there, there was you know, um, great racism in the state, especially in the South, especially in the, the southern portions of Illinois that you know, were, were, were practically part of the South. Um, which means, right, Lincoln's audience, who he's speaking to, who he's trying to persuade, who he's trying to, to reason with, to argue in favor of the restoration of the Missouri Compromise and against Douglas's popular sovereignty doctrine in the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, Lincoln is speaking right to a great diverse audience, abolitionist, anti-black, white men, and other Whigs like Lincoln who have respect for the, the law and the Constitution. And what that means in the aggregate is, is this. When a vast number of your audience do not believe that the slave is a human being, Lincoln first has to persuade them that a slave 
is a human being, that there's a difference, in other words, between a, a slave and a hog. As he says right, in this speech, arguing against um, Douglas's pop song doctrine, he says, right, in regards to popular sovereignty, right, it is, that is right, I would be there with, uh, with Stephen Douglas, with Judge Douglas, and I would agree with him about this sacred right of self-government if there is no difference between hogs and Negroes. He says this, this is towards the end of the speech, he says, equal justice to the South, it is said, requires us to consent to the extending of slavery to new countries. That is to say, inasmuch as you do not object to my taking my hog to Nebraska, therefore I must not object to you taking your slave. Now I admit this is perfectly logical. If there is no difference between hogs and Negroes. But while you thus require me to deny the humanity of the Negro, I ask, I wish to ask whether you of the South yourselves have ever been willing to do as much. So Lincoln first has to convince his audience that the slave is a human being and not a hog. That is the first argument that must be made. That is the first point that must be made. And that point must be made before you can begin talking about prohibiting slavery everywhere. We start with that idea, and then we can start, okay, what about the territories? Then, oh, okay, what about the other states? Right? But that has to come first. And so Lincoln has to move prudently. I don't want to say slowly, but he has to move prudently considering the character of his audience. And his audience at this time simply is not ready or prepared for mass abolition. Okay. Uh, this this can, can I just uh, con uh, add to that? That was a great. If you if, uh, not to interrupt your question, um, uh, I was just looking at your drink there for a minute, but mesmerized me. <laughs> and probably an old fashioned. Any rate, uh, <laughs> uh, I would just add, add. I mean, Jason is absolutely right, and it's important to uh, just just to. Uh, to continue his thought here, this is very much, you know, Jason pitched this perfectly. Lincoln has a tough audience in Illinois. Mm. And so what he does is point out that the founders, who are, you know, inherently conservative, supported slavery's restriction. And they only dealt with it as a matter of necessity. And, and so the, the, his clear inference over and over again is that the founders, since it's in Cooper Union, he alludes to it here, uh, the founders wanted to place slavery on a course of ultimate extinction. So one of one of the one of, you know we've got the um, House divided speech here in our packet this evening too. And one of the one of the Lincoln's tactics throughout this uh, struggle, and including his debate with debates with Douglas, is to claim the mantle of conservatism. You know, to say my policy is the policy of the founders. They restricted slavery. He goes through that laundry list of examples of the founders. Um, or the founding generation passing restrictions on slavery as an institution, whether it's you know banning the slave trade or uh, the Northwest Ordinance, and so he suggests that his policy isn't radical at all. His policy, in fact, That's is a conservative policy, and and so I think you know just to, just to add to what you said, Jason, which is absolutely right, you know you you've got a tough audience who's not who's not predisposed to look with favor on black civil and political equality. So if you can enlist the founders and say to the uh, you know the people of Illinois, look, 
all I'm doing is, you know, and kind of de-emphasize that what comes after the end of slavery, which is black political social equality, instead emphasize that the founders, in fact, restricted slavery and were against the expansion of slavery and indeed wanted slavery to ultimately expire. Well, I think that's an, an appealing case or a more appealing case than the kind of case uh, or the argument that Garrison would have advanced. What was the source of Lincoln's views on slavery? This is a guy who comes out of Kentucky, uh, lives in Illinois. As you say, he's not, you know, this is not a, even though, even though Illinois is, is not a slave state, it's not a place that takes particularly kindly to blacks. How was it that, that Lincoln comes to this view that, that slavery is wrong? Yeah, I'll just say something very briefly about sure. that. Sure. Like, as I said, he, right, he, that was a sentiment he carried with him his whole life. It started back when he was a young boy, right? So when, he is, when he's growing up in Indiana, his father, Thomas, um, this was well before, right, Lincoln had, had eight, reached the age of maturity, right? Back then it was 21. Thomas Lincoln would loan his son out to local farmers to work their fields all day from sunup to sun, sundown. And then when Lincoln would come home, he, of course, right, was paid for this labor, right? He would come home, right, with some money in his hand. And when he first thing, when he walked through the door, his father would come up to him, approach him, and put his hand out. And Lincoln was forced to turn over his day's earnings to his to his father. And that was allowed under the law, and that wasn't just Indiana. That was that was practically everywhere, right? Until you reached of age, right, your parents, essentially, right, they could loan you out to neighbors. You would work for the neighbors, and this was a way of you supporting your family. But Lincoln said later, right, that was my first inkling. That was my first indication about what slavery was about that it was forced labor that resulted in the fruits of that labor going not to the laborer, but to somebody else. That was his first real understanding. You know what, this is, this is wrong. This is wrong. You deserve, as the founders right, would argue, that man deserves to enjoy the fruits of his labor. Right? And it's not by the principle that you work and I eat, which is the principle that slavery teaches, but it's the, the principle of Genesis, that man must earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. Uh, the other incident early in his life was, was after he had come of age and started off on his own, and he goes on his trip down the, down the Mississippi. And uh, right, that was the first time he saw real slavery, right? real African slavery, right? not sort of the slavery light that really he had experienced as a young man. Um, and right, the story that emerges from that trip down the Mississippi, which may be apocryphal, right? He sees these these slave traders on the, the Mississippi, and Lincoln says to his friend, right, if I ever get the chance to hit that thing, I will hit it hard. Dan. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, Kenneth, I think it's Kenneth Winkle that did a book called uh, The Young Eagle or something like that. It had the, the kind of title that only a University Press would give to a book, uh, <laughs> uh, but the point, the Winkler's argument was essentially that 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 uh, Lincoln's father, as Jason said, uh, uh, loaned him out, and he resented it, and and it stuck with him. I think I would just add. So you know, I, Jason said everything that needs to be said on this. I, I would just the only thing I would add is that uh, it's important to remember that Thomas Lincoln left Kentucky in part 
and brought you know Lincoln first to Indiana and then Illinois in part because he did like slavery. So I'm sure that you know uh, I was talking to uh, James Cornelius a few months ago about this, um, who well, until recently was a curator of the Lincoln Collection. And I, I say this not to be a pretentious name dropper, but I was just talking to this person about this, and Cornelius always defends Thomas. I mean, his argument is that. Um, we've been too hard on uh, Thomas and that Thomas probably because of his own anti-slavery sentiments passed those on to Lincoln hmm. which isn't to say that he didn't in the end kind of resent <laughs> the fact that his dad took his pay you know every time he came home from uh, cutting you know lumber all day hmm. uh, so but but uh, that, I just throw that out I mean I don't you know I haven't spent any great time on thinking about that but it's an interesting thought that you know, Thomas uh, uh, was someone that disliked slavery. His father did, so uh, I'm sure he imparted that to his son in some respects. Absolutely. So obviously, this is a, a lengthy document. Uh, I think this holds the record for the longest document that we have used in one of these uh, one of these webinars. Um, and a great deal of it is taken up with uh, a very lengthy historical survey. Uh, the found everything from the founders and slavery up through the the history of the uh, uh, of, of uh, uh, the Missouri Compromise right up to the Kansas Nebraska Act. Why is this lengthy background rhetorically necessary for Lincoln? Hmm. Well, I, I, if you don't mind my just jumping in, I mean, and and then you can respond too. Uh, this is this is Lincoln, I think, making the case that he expands upon in uh, Cooper Union, which is to say Lincoln, as it paints, to suggest that there, that the true policy of the founders, the true policy that the country should be following was to restrict the institution of slavery, uh, that it was Douglas that was the radical. You know, Douglas is, is opening the uh, territories to popular sovereignty, and that that's the radical course. And therefore, what he's advocating is the true policy that's that's more uh, in line with the founding document of the United States, the Declaration. I mean, as Jason so eloquently pointed out at the beginning of this, it, this is Lincoln embracing the Declaration as uh, the kind of the document in American history. Uh, this is for, from where all blessings flow, and it's also the document that that uh, to which all deference should be paid. You know, and it, of course, specifically the the second paragraph with all the natural rights uh, material. And I, I would only add to that. I think you see, I think you see Lincoln, the lawyer, in this speech, uh, quite clearly, sort of going through the argument, point by point, right? The historical background, right? He talks about uh, the Missouri Compromise. He talks about the Compromise of, of 1850. He talks about the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, taking us through this history, uh, in part to, to do exactly what what Dan said to lay claim to the founder. It's not Lincoln's policy of, right, which is, his policy is, right, don't touch slavery where it currently exists in the states, but prevent its spread into new territories. Lincoln is making the case that that's how the founders viewed slavery. Whereas on the other hand, you have Steve Douglas. You have Steve Douglas and many of his followers, many Right, and he's converting actually many Whigs to his side, Douglas is. Um, and Douglas is claiming that, no, the founders would be with me. 
right? This isn't the first or the last time, right, that American politicians are arguing, right, which side the American founders would be on. Douglas is saying, no, the American founders agreed in this sacred principle of, of self-government, popular sovereignty, the freedom, the right of the people to choose. I am with the founders. It's Lincoln who is departing from that claim. And Douglas himself will make that case and make it very convincingly, very persuasively. Uh, so, for example, in response to Lincoln's House Divided speech, which is, again, one of the other documents I think we're looking at this evening, um, Douglas will say to Lincoln, what do you mean a house divided against itself cannot stand, Mr. Lincoln? Our founding fathers created this nation as half free and half slave. Our founding fathers created this house divided. And it has always existed that way. Why can it not continue to exist upon the basis upon which our founders created it, Mr. Lincoln? What you're talking about in the house divided speech, a house divided against itself cannot stand, Mr. Lincoln, you are talking about civil war. You're the radical, Mr. Lincoln. And look, in some ways, that argument of Douglas's, that popular sovereignty argument, is still with us. Right? The right of the, the freedom, the right of the people to be free to choose. Just let the people decide. If there's a dispute, if there's a controversy, if there's some political question, you know what? Just leave it up to a vote. Let the people decide for themselves. Democracy. Right? And the founding fathers. Lincoln says, not so fast. This is more complicated. And because it's more complicated, right, that involves a lawyer-like argument to make the case, which we get here in this speech, I think. And, and Cooper Union is... Uh, that's right. Yeah. Well, you, go ahead. No, 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 you, you go ahead. Is, is it appropriate to call Lincoln a conservative, or is he... Uh, smart enough to know the appeal of, uh, of, a, of a conservative argument in this context? Well, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I'll take it. Let me just take a swing at it. I mean, I, w I think it is. I mean, Link the, one of the, you know, why is Lincoln the end, end up being the kind of consensus candidate for president in 1860 in a, in a crowded Republican field? Well, because the other candidates were regarded as much more radical on the issue of slavery. Um, I, although I don't think William Seward really was, but that was his public public image. Yeah. Um, but Lincoln was always a moderate on the issue of slavery. Now, he always says, you know, we noted this earlier, always says slavery was immoral. But remember, what was Lincoln's preferred policy on uh, slavery? I mean, how, how should we uh, deal with this as a problem? It was always gradual, compensated emancipation, followed by colonization. Well, that's a fairly moderate uh, path. Um, and in this, and in, in, in indeed in this um, uh, series of speeches that we're parsing, he's always careful to position himself as someone who's working within the system, as someone who's, as I characterized it earlier, someone who's following regular order. Mm. You know, he's opposed to slavery expanding in the territories, but he wants to. He, he uh, thinks that it's perfectly constitutional for the Congress to act on that way, and act to restrict it. And he gives copious examples of the Congress doing the very thing um, in, in earlier instances. So, you know, and I think it's in Cooper Union where he, he addresses this charge directly. You know, you say we are the radicals. You say we're uh, rending the country apart. And then Lincoln says, what could be more conservative than to follow the policy of the founders? Hmm. And the founders restricted slavery countless times. They clearly were putting it on the course of ultimate extinction. They only dealt with it out of necessity, 
you know, the, so, the so-called doctrine of necessity. It is there, therefore we have to deal with it. But we have no affection for it, and we recognize it's directly contrary to the principles upon which the country is founded. So, yeah, I think uh, I would characterize him uh, in that fashion because Lincoln characterized himself in that fashion. That was really, really good. And I, I don't want to tarnish that by saying anything in my own voice. I just want to read here maybe a bit from Lincoln. Uh, on the on the point that Dan just brought out, he's talking about um, right, what are we to think of the the Southern people? And Lincoln says, right, they are just what we would be in their situation, right? If we grew up like they grew up, we would be just like them. And then he goes on to say, I surely then will not blame them for not doing what I should not know how to do myself. If all earthly power were given to me. I should not know what to do as to the existing institution, slavery. My first impulse would be to free all the slaves and send them to Liberia, colonization, to their own native land. But a moment's reflection would convince me that whatever of high hope, as I think there is, there may be in this in the long run, its sudden execution is impossible. If they were all landed there in a day, they would all perish in the next 10 days. And there are not surplus shipping and surplus money enough in the world to carry them there in many times 10 days. What then? Free them all and keep them among us as underlings? It is, quite, is it quite certain that this betters their condition? I think I would not hold one in slavery at any rate. Yet the point is not clear enough to me to denounce people upon. What then? Free them and make them politically and socially our equals. My own feelings will not admit of this. And if mine would, and if mine would, be well known that those of the great mass of white people will not. Whether this feeling accords with justice and sound judgment is not the sole question, if indeed it is any part of it. A universal feeling, whether well or ill-founded, cannot be safely disregarded. We cannot then make them equals. It does seem to me that systems of gradual emancipation might be adopted. But for their tardiness in this, I will not undertake to judge our brethren of the South. Hmm. Well, that's that's awesome. I'm uh, I'm so glad you read that passage because it's all marked up in all my in all my collection documents. It's awesome. I, I just wanted to to uh, put a kind of uh, close comment at the end of that, and that is that uh, notice how forgiving Lincoln is towards slave owners, uh, yeah. and how and and how understanding. Uh, it harkens back to his temperance address of 1842, where, where Lincoln said to the temperance movement, look, uh, you're being too harsh on people with addiction issues, you know, because the temperance movement would famously call the drunkard up to the, uh, <laughs> to the front of the meeting and then denounce him uh, for his, uh, his addiction issues and, and, and criticize him. And Lincoln said, look, we need to be more forgiving of, 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 of people. You, in order to get someone to break an addiction, you need to love them and help them and uh, and be kind and uh, you know. Well, in many respects, this this uh, foretells his approach to Southerners. You know, here he is saying, as Jason, you know, he read that marvelous paragraph. He's saying to him, "Look, if I was born in the South uh, or lived in the South, <laughs> actually, like it was born in the South, but if I lived in the South, I would be uh, I would be as you are." Uh, well, that's fairly forgiving. Uh, and, you know, and again, uh, I, I think they should adopt emancipation, but I'm not going to uh, denounce them for their tardiness in doing so. We find it striking. To, okay. yeah, he's, he, I was just going to just want more, just to conclude, he's, he's certain 
searching for cons- some kind of consensus or some kind of middle ground uh, uh, about which there just wasn't any. But he's trying. You know, he's, he's trying to work the system. I find one of the most striking arguments that he puts forward here against the expansion of slavery into the territories does not address the issue of justice for blacks at all, but rather justice for whites when he talks about the three-fifths clause. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says here, and this is the way it printed on mine, it's page 16, um, if it really be a sacred right of self-government in the man who shall, who shall go to Nebraska to decide whether he will be the equal of me or the double of me in terms of how much representation they get based on slave population, mm-hmm. then, then after he shall have exercised that right and thereby shall have reduced me to a still smaller fraction of a man than I already am, I should like for some gentleman deeply skilled in the mysteries of sacred rights to provide himself with a microscope and peep about and find out, if he can, what has become of my sacred rights. <laughs> it's awesome stuff. There is a, 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 a couple of questions here. Uh, I'm going to go to the one I got more recently first because it directly keys on to this. I wonder if Lincoln isn't just being practical. If the founders wanted to ban slavery, there would be no argument in favor of slave states Coming into the uh, or coming into the union. Comment on that. I'm sorry. Could you could you repeat that? Yeah. I missed that. Uh, I wonder if Lincoln isn't just being practical. If the founders wanted to ban slavery, there would be no argument in favor of slave slave states. And I don't. The the, the next word is a, is, a, is a typo, and I'm not sure what it's supposed to be. It could either be coming or going into the union, or it could be something else entirely. Well, remember the the the, conund- the the great conundrum about slavery was that uh, during the Revolution was you had to have unity to defeat the British, and um, you know remember that paragraph that's removed from the Declaration because of the objections to South Carolina and Georgia. Um, you know you had to, and the same thing with the Constitution. In order to have the kind of unity that created the Union, um, the founders were forced to tolerate the existence of slavery, you know, as Lincoln says, out of necessity. But it didn't mean they loved it or even liked it. Um, and, and Lincoln is constantly emphasizing the, the uh, numerous measures that they took uh, that clearly demonstrated their distaste for it. Yeah, and I would, I would, I would just jump in, um, and I would, I would add to that. I mean, we could talk more about right, the founders' approach to slavery, which is right, huge and a complicated issue in and of itself, but... Right prior to the American Revolution, all 13 American colonies protected slavery under their laws. There was slavery in all 13. By the end of the founding era, eight of those 13 had proceeded to abolish slavery, either immediately or, or gradually. Uh, in the Northwest Ordinance, right, the first, the first territories owned by the United States, um, the future states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, um, the founders prohibit slavery prohibit the extension of slavery into those territories right from the get-go. Lincoln will be constantly going back to, to the Northwest Ordinance to prove his case that the founders actually were anti-slavery uh, and in favor of Congress regulating slavery in, in I was going to say into the territory, but out of the territory. Out of the territory. Um, and Lincoln, yeah, he is very, very practical and he is a conservative. He's willing to compromise. I mean, right, he, he's calling for the restoration of the Missouri Compromise, but there's one issue 
that Lincoln is not willing to compromise on. And it's what he calls my ancient faith. My ancient faith, which he draws from the Declaration of Independence, which Dan brought up before. My ancient faith teaches me that all men are created equal. And I think Lincoln is very concerned about justice for the slave, justice for the black man. And he goes so far as to say, even the Southerners, there's still something in the, even in the heart and soul of the Southerners that speaks to that demand for justice on the part of the slave. He talks about, uh, in this speech, he says, right, there are very few men out there who are by nature tyrants. There are very few natural tyrants among us. And then he goes to talking about right, the Southern slave owners. Are they natural tyrants? He says, well, when you look at the Southern slave owners, even they, even the, the worst slave owner, will not allow his children to play with the children of the slave dealer. So he says in, in this speech, he says, uh, again, you have amongst you a sneaking individual of the class of native tyrants, known as the slave dealer. He watches your necessities and crawls up to buy your slave at a speculating price. If you cannot help it, you sell to him. But if you, can, if you can help it, you drive him from your door. You despise him utterly. You do not recognize him as a friend. Right? He's talking to southern slave owners here. You do not recognize him, the slave dealer, as a friend or even as an honest man. Your children must not play with his. <clears throat> they may rollick freely with the little Negroes, but not with the slave dealer's children. Then in the next paragraph, he goes on and he talks about all the free blacks that are roaming freely throughout the United States and the territories, including the District of Columbia. 433,643 free blacks, Lincoln says. At $5 per head, they are worth over $200 million. How comes this vast amount of property to be running about without owners. We do not see free horses or free cattle running at large. How is this? All these free blacks are the descendants of slaves, or have been slaves themselves, and they would be slaves now, but for something which is operated on their white owners, inducing them at vast pecuniary sacrifices to liberate them. What is that something? Is there any mistaking it? In all these cases, it is your sense of justice and human sympathy continually telling you that the poor Negro has some natural right to himself, that those who deny it and make mere merchandise of him deserve kickings, contempt, and death. Hmm. Very interesting. So, I... I'd like to, to talk a little bit about how this speech was received, uh, both uh, at the time and since. And first of all, in this line, I would like to go to a question submitted by Bryson Betts. Why is this document almost entirely overlooked in American history classrooms, especially at the high school level? It's too long and it's too hard. No, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's a challenging text, and um, um, it's a, it's a it's a long argument. I mean, I I use excerpts myself. Um, I just pick the sexy parts and use those, and because uh, uh, I think it, it is difficult. It's difficult for college uh, students to parse. 
Yeah. And you know, well, in high school, with the curriculum the way it is, when Lincoln has to be dead by Christmas, <laughs> and you spend your time reading the second inaugural and Gettysburg Address, and you, you skip Peoria out of necessity a lot of the time. Now, this, you know, I'm going to editorialize a bit. This has been my complaint about AP courses for a long time. Uh, you take some of the smartest students uh, and, and best prepared students, pair them with what is often the, the best social studies teacher in, the, in a given school, and then you impose on them a curriculum that requires a forced march all the way from colonial days up to, uh, I don't know, 9-11 or later. It just, it just seems to me to be a shocking waste of an opportunity, but that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, what about the response at, at the time? Uh, I, I go through this and I think, wow, this is, this is brilliantly written. Lincoln scores point after point, uh, yet, you know, I know that Lincoln lost the election, <laughs> Uh, I, and and that, that there must have been some response to this at the time that was better than any response that I could possibly make to it. What, how was this, this speech received by his contemporaries? Well, it, was, it was very well received. Um, and Abe Lincoln, a leading figure in the anti-Nebraska coalition, now remember this is 1854, um, and it also made him a leading contender for Senate because uh, there was an election for senator in Illinois in January of 1855. Um, so, which isn't to say that Lincoln was obscure before the speech. I mean, he was a well-known figure and had become really a, probably the leading lawyer in Illinois uh, prior to the speech, but it was very well received. Um, I think he becomes a leading light of the anti-Nebraska coalition that's made up of ex-Democrats and, and what's left of the Whig Party and uh, nativists. Uh, in part because of this speech, uh, so it's it has a dramatic effect, and I, I, I think Lincoln sees the day. You know, Lincoln always said that he wanted to be senator more than he wanted to be president. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, in the wake of the speech, it was so well received. Lincoln basically begins to campaign uh, for the uh, um, the uh, open seat uh, of James Shields uh, while well, Shields was up for re-election, Democrat. Um, in part because of how well this speech was received. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this speech, as, as Dan mentioned earlier, pulls Lincoln out of the political wilderness. Right? He had, right, had served one term, two years in the House of Representatives, was content, although maybe not perfectly content, to sort of go back to his law practice and fade into political obscurity. The passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854 was a fire bell in the night, to borrow Jefferson's phrase, a fire bell in the night for Lincoln that awakened him and, and filled him with terror. And so he comes out of the political wilderness for the first time with this speech. If it flops or if he doesn't, you know, give the speech, um, that doesn't get the ball rolling that makes the other events of the 1850s and into the 1860s, of course, possible. Um, without this speech, you, you don't have the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858, which make Lincoln a national figure outside of Illinois. You don't have the Cooper Union Address in 1860, which makes him a very viable candidate for the Republican nomination for president in that year. Uh, this is the, the speech that really, like I said, gets the ball rolling and makes, um, makes a Lincoln presidency possible. Without this speech, Lincoln would not have been president. I'll go that, and I'll go so far as to say that. 
Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that's well said. Yeah. Uh, this uh, neither this speech nor uh, any of the other uh, speeches we looked at for this evening cast Stephen Douglas in a particularly favorable light. Uh, on what basis is he? Was he so well regarded? Time. Well, I'll, I'll take a swipe at that since my PhD advisor wrote the definitive Douglas biography. Or, um, and I would just say this, I mean, Doug, Douglas was uh, a, a dynamic public speaker. Uh, I, I, when I, whenever you, I, I see Douglas or see pictures of him, I always think of a pugilist or a boxer. Mm-hmm. He always seems to be in a kind of fighting stance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Douglas was a consummate uh, politician and legislator. I mean, Douglas was the chair of the Committee on the Territories. It was an action committee in the Senate in those days. Uh, he wanted to get things done. He saw himself as moving the country towards forward to kind of a, a period of unparalleled prosperity. And uh, all, all that had to be done was to get more farmers out into this vast uh, territory. And anything that stood in the way was kind of a bad thing. Um, and, and Douglas, I think, hoped to not to make slavery a moral issue. I mean, Douglas wanted to see it strictly as a kind of policy issue and to try to keep the uh, uh, talking about in immoral terms um, all out, you know, he just wanted to avoid that if he could. Um, now in the end, I think Douglas, as you, as you know, I think Douglas uh, goes to uh, drift into terrible race baiting. Uh, but, you know, Douglas was a very significant figure. I mean, it's always important to remember um, that when we debated Douglas in 1858, uh, Douglas was the, um, you know, the, the supreme uh, political star uh, and, and, and dressed immaculately, had his own kind of private train to chug around Illinois. Uh, I mean, he, he was kind of a, a political celebrity in the 1850s. And he had earned that, too, be, because of his, um, uh, you know, his, his very aggressive leadership. Now, I think I, 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 I am not. Uh, suggesting that Douglas was a uh, right about these matters, I think he was profoundly wrong. Uh, but I, but that's you know your question was you know why was Douglas so renowned? I think the answer is he had an immensely successful political career, was capping it with being chair of the Senate Committee on the Territories, and and he hoped to use that as a kind of springboard to the White House. All right, Jason, anything to add on that? Mm-hmm. Uh, the only the only thing I, I would add is that yeah Douglas was the, the much more famous politician uh, at this time and really for the you know for the next six years up in, up until Lincoln almost until the time Lincoln went to the election he is the much more famous name after Peoria after this address um, Douglas learns to take Lincoln seriously uh, in the way the country would very soon learn to take Lincoln seriously. Um, but Lincoln would, you know, use that to his advantage. Lincoln would use Douglas's fame and, and his relative, his own relative obscurity to, to his advantage. I was just, uh, briefly before the webinar, I was looking here at the, um, at Basler's notes to his, uh, to his, um, uh, his text of the, the Peoria address and his volume and, and, um, Basler sort of details the, the events surrounding the, the speech that Douglas and Lincoln both 
uh, addressed the, the same large audience here at Peoria. Douglas had spoken for several hours, and then Lincoln was going to up, get up and give his, his speech. But he says, you know what, it's already late. It's dinner time. Why don't we break for an hour? Everybody go and get something to eat, and then come back here at 7, and then I'll respond to Douglas. And it's going to take me a few hours. And, and Judge Douglas has just told me he intends to uh, speak for a half hour after my remarks are done. So we're in for a long night, folks. And Lincoln says this. This was recorded um, in the what, – what does Basler say here? in the October 21st, 1854 edition of the Illinois State Journal. Um, this is, this is uh, Lincoln speaking. He says, now every one of you who can remain that long can just as well get his supper, meet me at seven, and remain one hour or two later. The judge has already informed me that he is to have an hour, excuse me, not a half hour, an hour to reply to me. I doubt not, but you have been a little surprised to learn that I have been consented to give one of his high reputation and notability, this advantage of me. <laughs> My consenting to it, though reluctant, was not wholly unselfish, for I suspected that if it were understood that the judge was entirely done, well, you Democrats would leave and not hear me. But by giving him the clothes, I felt confident you would stay for the fun of hearing him skin me. <laughs> great well, stuff. We have uh, only a couple of minutes left. Uh, I, this gives a, an opportunity for each of you to offer uh, a closing argument of sorts. We have a, an audience of 56, uh, I imagine most, if not all, of whom are teachers. Uh, what will give your best case in maybe uh, 30 seconds or less as to why this, uh, why this document deserves a place in the curriculum, or perhaps excerpts of the document? Hmm. Uh, should I, you want me to riff, start? Yeah, sure, Dan. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll just say, uh, uh, well, I think it's, I think it deserves a place in the curriculum because it's Lincoln making the moral case against slavery. It's Lincoln arguing that black Americans are included in the Declaration. And he does it in a very emphatic and a very, I think, eloquent way. It's the beginning of, I think, Lincoln's uh, kind of... Uh, series of speeches that are both lyrical and uh, memorable. Um, I think the natural ending to this speech is uh, on page, it's on page 24 of what was in the, uh, what was posted from teachingamericanhistory.org where Lincoln says, our Republican robe is soiled and trailed in the dust. Let us repurify it. Let us turn and wash it white in the spirit, if not the blood of the revolution. Let's turn slavery from its claim of moral right back upon its existing rights. In other words, what Lincoln is saying is that slavery is polluting the noble principles of the revolution and the country's turning into something that it was never intended to be. So let's go back and he uses that wonderful biblical metaphor of washing the robe white. Uh, it's just, it's fabulous. And I think it had great force and power and, to, and still does today. I mean, if there's one part of the speech that I quote to students is what I just quoted. You know, that, that uh, paragraph that begins, our Republican robe is soiled, let's purify it, let's turn and wash it white again. I mean, what could, what could be more telling, what could be more powerful in that day and in this day? Jason? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned that Republican robe passage, Dan, because that, that, that's, that sets it up nicely. Because let, let me just read a little bit more from that same passage. Where he says our Republican robe is soiled and trailed in the dust. Let us repurify it. Let us wash it white in the spirit, if not the blood of the revolution. Let us readopt the Declaration of Independence. 
he says, going on. Let us readopt the Declaration of Independence, and with it, the practices and policies which harmonize with it. Let North and South, let all Americans, let all lovers of liberty everywhere join in the great and good work. If we do this, if we do this, we shall not only have saved the Union, but we shall have so saved it as to make and to keep it forever worthy of the saving. We shall have so saved it that the succeeding millions of free, happy people the world over shall rise up and call us blessed to the latest generation. Readopting the Declaration of Independence, making the Union worthy of the saving, right? Not just saving the Union, but making it worthy of the, slave, uh, of the saving, right? That's, that is Lincoln's ultimate purpose in the Civil War, not just to save the Union, not just to save the Union or to preserve, right, what he called that frame of silver, which is the Union and the Constitution, but with that silver frame, saving that golden apple, that principle of liberty to all from our Declaration of Independence to make it worthy of the saving, to not turn our back on the principles of the Declaration of Independence without turning our back on, again, that ancient faith, by ancient faith, that all men are created equal, which Douglas and his Popsov doctrine had threatened to destroy by going out and blowing out the, the moral lights around us, as Lincoln will say, in another place. Uh, with that, we will uh, bring this, se this session to an end. I want to thank both of our panelists for their remarks, as well as to our participants for some great questions. Just as a reminder, you will be receiving an email in the next week with a link for a certificate of participation if you should want one. If you have enjoyed tonight's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course through our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can find more information about these online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org. And you can help us spread the word about our teacher programs by sharing the archive link, which again you'll receive by email next week. Share that with your colleagues as well as on social media. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will be Wednesday, February 20th, when our subject will be Theodore Roosevelt's Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. At that time, I'll be joined by Dr. David Alvis of Wofford College and Dr. Sarah Burns of the Rochester Institute of Technology. The recommended readings for that webinar have already been posted. We hope to see you back here on February 20th. Thank you again, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at tah.org slash webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.